Amen. Lord has the words of life, and we're going to read those words of life now in John chapter 4. If you've been with us throughout our series in John, you'll remember a few weeks ago, Jesus pursued a religious leader, a Pharisee, in John chapter 3. And then last week, he pursued the soul of a woman at the well in Samaria, Samaritan woman. And now, we'll see that he's pursuing a royal official of Herod's court. And the point is, is that no one is beyond the grace of Jesus. He is for everyone on any level of society, no matter what background you are from. So let's read God's word together, starting in chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, starting in verse 43 through the end of the chapter. Here is God's word for us this morning. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and is all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. You may sit down. Let's pray together as we seek to understand God's word together. Father in heaven, we long to hear from you today through your word. We know that you speak to us, even now, are speaking to us. Your word is living. It is active. We want to be comforted by you. We want to be challenged by you. And we ask in the powerful name of Jesus, through the working of your spirit, that you would so stir our hearts and convince our minds that your son Jesus possesses all that we need today. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, desperate times call for desperate measures. It's been said there are no atheists in foxholes. That's because when our backs are against the wall, when we feel like we are out of control, we as humans naturally will call out to someone or something greater than ourselves. This was true of the great reformer Martin Luther before he was a Christian. He was in a field and he was caught in a thunderstorm. There was lightning striking all around him, and he thought he was going to die. And so in his desperation, he called out, not to God, he called out to Saint Anne. Why did he call out to Saint Anne? 
Well, his dad was a miner. He was, worked in the mines. And St. Anne was the patron saint of miners. And so Martin Luther, thinking, well, she's greater than I am. I'm going to call out to St. Anne. If she saves me, I'll become a monk, he thought. Well, he, he made it out of the thunderstorm, and Martin Luther became a monk. And in due time, aren't we glad that he realized he didn't need to call out to St. Anne. Actually, he shouldn't call out to St. Anne. He could call out to Jesus Christ himself. Well, I wonder if today you are going through some level of desperation yourself. Surely all of us at some point of our lives have gone through these times of desperation. And I wonder when those times happen, when you're confronted with desperation in your own life, when you feel so out of control, where do you go? Who do you call out to? For some of us, if it's a health issue, we call out to a doctor or an expert of some kind, or a counselor, a trusted friend. But I wonder where Jesus is on that list of who we're going to call out to. Well, today, in today's passage, we'll encounter a royal official who is very desperate. His son is on the brink of death. He's tried everything. All other methods have failed. But he's heard of this rabbi who's come to his region. This healer, this man who has been said to heal others, this man Jesus. And so he goes immediately and he goes to find Jesus. And what he'll discover when he meets Jesus in this encounter is that not only will he encounter an amazing man, his life will be changed forever. So remember where we are here in the story. Jesus and his disciples have just witnessed a revival A revival has broken out in Samaria of all places. The despised Samaritans have come to faith. These people in Sychar, this town in Samaria, they've come to faith in Jesus Christ. They've trusted him as Lord. And likely John is giving us the story of the Samaritans to show us the contrast between the Samaritans' response to Jesus and his own people, the the Jews' response to Jesus. Because if you turn back just a little bit in John's gospel to chapter one, you'll remember what John said about Jesus. In verse 11, it says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. His own people did not receive him. And in our text today, he inserts this parenthetical comment about the entire region up in Galilee where he's going in verse 44. John says, for Jesus himself had said that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Now John's not talking about just that little region of Nazareth, that little town of Nazareth. The word hometown here can refer to an entire region, so your hometown area. So what Jesus and John are referring to is that up in Jesus' hometown area of Galilee, he has no honor. But we'll see that even in this area where many people will reject him, we'll see that God is still at work. Not all will reject him. Some will receive him and believe in his name. And as we get into the story, we're going to observe a progression from an incomplete faith to saving faith as we track the faith of this royal official from Galilee. Well, there are two main points that come out of this passage. One is a warning and the other is an exhortation. The warning comes from verses 43 to 50 and it's this. Beware of believing in 
Jesus' power alone. In Jesus' power alone. Beware of believing in Jesus for his power alone. And the exhortation comes from verses 51 to 54. And that's to trust in the person behind the power. Trust in the person behind the power. So let's first look at the danger of believing in Jesus for his power alone. In this first section, we can observe an incomplete faith. We've got examples generally from the people of Galilee, and then more specifically of one Galilee and this royal official that John tracks. And at first glance, it doesn't look like anything is wrong with their faith, uh, of the, the faith of the Galileans and their belief in Jesus. Listen to verse 45. It says, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. So this warm welcome by the people of Galilee described there in verse 45 seems to be in conflict with the other verse I just read, verse 44, that a prophet is not accepted or has no honor in his hometown. So it begs the question, if Jesus has no honor up there, why are the Galileans welcoming him? What's going on here? Well, we know then from the context, this type of welcome is not the honor that Jesus deserves. This is not... Uh, what Jesus is looking for from people. They, because in the text, we, we see in verse 45 the faulty reasoning behind the Galileans' welcome. It's because they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. You see, if you remember back to chapter two, these people were in Jerusalem when Jesus cleared out the temple. Remember that story. They were in Jerusalem when Jesus performed countless signs and miracles in the presence of people. And they were likely among these people that John talks about at the end of chapter two, where it says that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that Jesus was doing. So you see, these Galileans were people that believed in Jesus because of his power. They wanted to be around someone with power, but they didn't believe in him as savior. How do I know that? Because back in chapter two, John tells us, Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus knew that the Galileans welcome of him was because of the miracles that he had done down in Jerusalem. They were fascinated with him. They believed that he was a capable miracle worker. They wanted to be around him. They wanted their kids to be healed. They wanted to see signs and wonders. And that uh, desire is is not new. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, we, uh, er, sorry, the New Testament, we read about multiple examples of people who want to be around this kind of power. They want supernatural power in their life. So if you remember in Acts 8, there was Simon the magician. He offered the apostles money so that he could have the same kind of power that they had. If you remember in Acts 19, you had the itinerant Jewish exorcist. I I love that kind of phrase. This is all you do is like go cast out demons, I guess, from people. But they were uh, speaking the name of Jesus, the one Paul proclaims. They didn't even know Jesus, but they wanted access to that kind of power. 
It didn't turn out so well for those guys, by the way. They loved being around someone with this type of power. People are drawn to signs and wonders. You can draw a crowd if you're gonna heal some folks. But friends, the point here is that Jesus is not a magician. He's not a genie that we rub and then we get our answer to our prayer or a healing at will. That's not who Jesus is. While it's true that he has the ability to do any miracle, he has all power, all authority, his miracles have purpose. Scholar Leon Morris points out that it's why they're called signs. Because Jesus' miracles are signs intended to point people to Jesus, that he's the savior of the world. He's the Christ. So Jesus, unlike Simon the magician or the itinerant Jewish exorcist or even self-proclaimed faith healers today, Jesus didn't come to earth to build his ego or to get rich. He didn't come to build a crowd, but to wear a crown, a crown of thorns. He came to rescue people from their sins. He came to call people into his kingdom. And his kingdom is not of this world, which is why so much of the world does not receive his message. So after we observe here the incomplete faith of the Galileans, yeah, sure they had welcomed him, but it was because of Jesus' miracles. Now John zeroes in on this royal official. It's probably a royal official from Herod's court. So let's pick up the story in verse 46. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So remember, Jesus was down south. He's in Samaria. He's come to Cana, which is just north of where he grew up in Nazareth, just some few miles away from Nazareth. And the royal official is in Capernaum, which is about a day's journey away. It's like 14 miles away. But this man hears about Jesus, the miracle worker, that he's come to town. He's come to the area, and he doesn't care how far the distance is. His son is dying. He is desperate. So he wants to book it and get to Cana. And so he travels there to find him. You see, this royal official was likely a wealthy man. He was likely an influential man. He had all sorts of connections in the region. He was connected to King Herod. But he was also a helpless man. Because none of his resources or none of his influence could help heal his son. And if you've ever been in a situation like that, you know the desperation that you feel when a child of yours is sick or when you're in a situation that is helpless. Some years ago, Sarah and I felt this very thing when our youngest son at the time had gotten sick, sick to the point that he was in the ICU and for one day we didn't know if we were gonna lose him. And I tell you what, when you're in those moments, when you feel that kind of desperation, when you don't know if your son is gonna live or you're gonna die, you call out. And in our case, we called out to the Lord Jesus. And that's where we need to call out when we're in desperation. And that's what this royal official felt. He feels desperation. He doesn't know what 
to do. He gets to Cana and he finds Jesus. Paraphrasing, he says, quick, you know, Jesus, come down. Come, come, come to my hometown so that you could heal my son. You can almost feel the desperation. You can feel the urgency in his voice. He doesn't know just how powerful Jesus is. He thinks Jesus needs to be with him in person to heal. But Jesus' response to him is uh, not what we would expect. So look at verse 48. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. You know, there's sometimes in the gospels where you're just like, wait, what, Jesus? (laughs) Did you just say that? One of the times is like in Mark chapter seven, when he calls a Syrophoenician woman a dog, and you're you're thinking like, what is Jesus doing here? And here, you've got this man whose son is dying, and Jesus' response to him is, unless you see signs and wonders, you will never believe. So what what is Jesus doing here? Well, we know that he's not sinning. Jesus never sinned. He's the perfect man. He was not being rude to this man. He was not putting him off. What he's doing is he's testing the man's faith for one, but he's also indicting the entire region of the Galileans at the same time. So he says, unless you believe, but in the original context, that's a you all. It's not just, he's talking to the man, but he's saying you all, all you Galileans, unless you all believe or see signs, you will never believe. But this official is not deterred. I mean, his response is really quite amazing. He doesn't argue with Jesus. He doesn't say, hey, I'm gonna do whatever. He just persists. So look at verse 49. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. It's the second time he's pleading with Jesus. He wants him to be near. He's convinced that Jesus can heal his son. But again, he thinks Jesus needs to be there. He doesn't realize the extent of Jesus's power. But even so, even though this man doesn't really get Jesus, he doesn't really know who he is, he just knows he's a powerful healer, Jesus listens to his requests. And so look what he says in verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And just like that, the boy is healed. The the words of Jesus are powerful beyond imagination. This is the one who, through whom the whole creation was made. This is the one through whom all of creation holds together. When Jesus speaks, things happen. He doesn't need to like ask somebody if it's okay. If Jesus speaks, that thing is gonna happen, whatever it is. Well, amazingly, the official agrees with Jesus. He, he believes him. The text says the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. This required quite a bit of faith. He had to go home to his son who was dying and he had to believe, uh, Jesus is not here, but he, he said he's gonna be better. He's gonna be better. So there is a strong measure of faith in this man. He traveled an entire day to see Jesus. He persisted in asking Jesus for healing. And now he leaves without Jesus knowing that Jesus will heal him. So the question is, what's wrong with this man's faith? Seems like pretty good faith. Well, what's wrong is that his belief is still superficial. 
he, he's sure, he, he believes that Jesus has the power to heal. He believes that. He believes Jesus' word is powerful enough he can even heal from a distance. That makes him very unique. But believing in Jesus' power alone, friends, is incomplete faith. A couple weeks ago, I told the story of Blondin, you know, that tightrope walker who walked across the Niagara Falls. He even walked across with a wheelbarrow, and hundreds of thousands of people, up to 100,000 people, were just watching this and cheering him on. But as we talked about a couple weeks ago, everyone believed in the power of Blondin and the ability of Blondin, but no one really had faith that he was going to not drop them when he said, who wants to get in the wheelbarrow as I go across? So similarly, the official believes in the power and ability of Jesus. But that is not enough. That is not saving faith. Friends, even the demons believe in the power of Jesus. They believe far more than we do. They understand the power of Jesus, but they don't have saving faith. The point is, is that a fascination with Jesus' power, even belief in Jesus' power, is not enough to save your soul. But what's so encouraging about this part of the story is that we can see the official growing in his faith. His faith is progressing. At first he just hears about this faith healer and he's fascinated. He wants to find healing for his son. But he's getting to the point now as he's leaving Cana that he knows Jesus is different. He's a different type of faith healer. He doesn't have faith, saving faith yet, but his faith is progressing. And maybe today you are here and you are fascinated with Jesus in a similar way to this uh, royal official. You're fascinated with how Jesus seems to change people's lives. And, and we're glad you're here if that's the case. But being fascinated with Jesus or being attracted to his power doesn't mean that your soul has been saved. But that's why we want to go on in the story, because, and we want you to hang on in the story if that's you, because what we're going to see here is an example of saving faith in Jesus, as this man trusts in the person behind the power. That's our second point. Trust in the person behind the power. You see, this royal official is about to realize what the scholar John Milne says, uh, that this son was not the only one who needed to be healed. <laughs> the man needed to be healed as well. And that realization comes as he's headed back home. See, as he's headed back to Capernaum, it's a long walk. He has a, a lot of time to think. You can imagine him mulling in his head over and over this conversation with Jesus. Thinking like, man, this is a different type of man. I've never met anyone like this. And as he was thinking about these things, thinking about uh, his son, his, these servants from his household come and they meet him on the road and they can't contain their excitement. So listen to verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Can you imagine the feeling of this official? I mean, he had, he had gone to great lengths to see that his son was healed and now he learns that his son is better the relief, the joy, the excitement. But his first question is an interesting one. He doesn't say like, how is my son, all these kind of things. He says, what, what time was he healed? Look, look at verse 52. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. 
And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And that, friends, is when it clicked for this man. That's when his faith in Jesus' power transformed into saving faith, in believing in Jesus as the person. It says that the man believed. He realized that the timing of his son's healing was uh, too coincidental. It was very personal for him. It wasn't just that Jesus performed a miracle. It was that Jesus was the son of God. And he was convinced when he heard that timing and he believed. So look at verse 53, it explains it. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. So the official believes in Jesus as his savior. He has been born again. He believes that he, Jesus, is the Christ. And like the Samaritan woman, he can't keep his newfound faith to himself. He shares with his whole household, and they all believe as well. It's a salvation party of sorts. But we mustn't miss uh, miss the point of this passage. The point of this passage is not to show that Jesus is going to heal all your sickness, or he's going to heal all your diseases, or he's going to answer your prayer in that very exact way, just like that happened with the official here. Just last week, I learned of a really tragic story of a Christian family in this area where, unlike the son in this story, their son didn't make it. And unexpectedly, they lost their son. It was and is heartbreaking. It's devastating. And so what are we to make of those situations when Jesus doesn't heal, when he doesn't seem to answer the prayer, when the bottom of life just seems to fall out right in front of us. When those situations, that's what we need to rem- why we need to remember that we often don't get the reason why from the Lord. We, we can't explain why families experience such tragedies as I know some in this room have experienced, some intense loss that many of you have gone through. No, God doesn't always give us the why, every single little answer that we want. But in this fallen world, he does give us the who. He gives us his son, Jesus Christ. And that's why we need to trust in the person behind the power. You see, if we are banking on a miracle to trust in Jesus, then we are setting ourselves up for extreme disappointment and disillusionment. If our faith is based upon God answering our prayer exactly as we want to, as exactly as we have it framed in our mind, and in, and in his sovereign plan, he chooses not to do that, then we'll question him, or we'll blame him, or we'll get angry at him, or we'll even disown him. And that's upside down thinking according to God's word, how he wants us to think. Instead, God invites us to trust in Jesus as a person in faith, regardless of whether he answers that prayer for healing, regardless of whether he answers your prayer exactly as you wished. Our Lord can be trusted. He can be trusted through all of life's trials. So if that's not the point of the passage, it's not about just getting a healing answer from Jesus, what is it? 
Well, we can summarize the main point like this. True belief in Jesus requires trusting the person behind the power. True belief in Jesus requires trusting the person behind the power. Well, the passage ends in verse 54 with another link back to chapter 2. It says, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. You see, John labeled Jesus turning water into wine in Galilee as the first sign. Now this healing of the official son is the second time. There's only two times in John where the, the miracles are numbered. They're both miracles that happened when Jesus was in Cana and, uh, and in Galilee. And both of these signs led to belief in Jesus as the Christ. First the disciples, then the officials. The officials, son and, uh, uh, the officials and all his household. And that is what Jesus' signs are intended to do. They're intended to point us to Jesus as the Savior, that we might have life in his name. So what John is doing, he's linking these two stories in the narrative, and he's pointing us to the big picture of his gospel that we might believe, that we might see these signs and believe that Jesus is the Christ. Because the stories here in John's gospel, they are entertaining. They're, they're really quite fascinating. They are intriguing. But they're not meant to merely entertain us. They're there so that we would embrace Jesus for ourselves. Because this Jesus is the Savior of the world. Yes, he can turn water into wine. Yes, he can... Uh, heal someone's son. He can even raise people from the dead. But even more miraculous than that, he can rescue your soul and my soul. And maybe there is someone today who hasn't yet put their trust in Jesus. Friends, if there is someone here today, don't leave without knowing Jesus as your Savior. Don't be fascinated with Jesus and his, just his miracles and all that. Those are amazing things. Jesus came so that you might have life and life to the full. So if you don't know him yet, would you trust in him? He's died for you. He rose from the dead for you that you might have life. Well, the royal official had a legitimate immediate need. His son was dying and he needed help. Jesus graciously met that need, but in so doing, he met the man's deepest need, his need for salvation. Again, John Milne, he's a scholar, he puts it beautifully. He says, in this final treasure, this treasure of salvation, uh, it's in this final treasure of salvation that Jesus seeks, and he is prepared to allow us to experience deep affliction in the process of obtaining it. And perhaps today you are going through some kind of trial that seems impossible. Perhaps you feel very desperate today. It seems too hard to handle on your own. You don't know what to do. This text today reminds us your trial is not random. In a sovereign a world governed by a sovereign God, your trial is not random. It's there because of the sovereign hand of the Lord. And in our desperation, God wants us to go to Jesus in our time of need. Not necessarily so that your trial will go away or that everyone and everything will be made better, but so that you might be transformed in his presence as you go through that trial.
Well, whether we feel like it or not, the royal official, like the royal official in this story, we're all in a desperate place. We're desperately in need of Jesus to heal our souls and to guide our lives. The story shows us that we can't be content with believing in the power of Jesus alone. That's incomplete faith. But that we need to believe in the person behind the power. And this person is the only son of God. He's the only solution. He's God's only solution to our problem of sin. Well, for those who know and love Jesus today, let this story challenge us to trust Jesus more fully. Because whether he answers our prayer in a very specific, miraculous way, or even if he doesn't answer our prayers as you would have liked, he can be trusted because he is the savior of the world. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you have sent your son Jesus to earth to show us uh, what your kingdom is like. We know in the presence of Jesus, nearly everyone gets healed. And we see that the kingdom gets inaugurated. And we look forward to that day when there will be no more crying or tears or pain forever. But Lord, we know in this fallen world that not everyone currently does get healed, that you in your sovereignty don't always choose to answer. And so I pray, Lord, whatever the case may be, if you are uh, calling us to ask of things that you want to do to heal and to answer prayer, that we would do that. And if we don't get those answers, Lord, that we would still trust you. And I pray, Lord, today that uh, any who or maybe just fascinated with you, maybe just um, are intrigued by your power, Lord Jesus, that they would trust in you as their Savior and Lord. And for all of us, Lord, that we would lift our eyes to you, we would worship you, we would magnify your name, knowing that you are our King. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.